Now this from Hebrews chapter 9. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of God for the people of God. So you may not have read Hebrews or passages from Hebrews as much as I have the last several weeks. I read each passage over a few times. I read the surrounding passages. By the time I got to this passage after preaching out of Hebrews for the last several weeks, I thought this sounds a little redundant. I mean, most of the points that are made in this passage, he's already made. We know what he believes, that Jesus Christ is the high priest, that he entered the Holy of Holies, not the one at the temple, but the one eternal in the heavens. He's told us that, that he's not only making sacrifices for us, but he's giving himself as the sacrifice on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. None of that is new. He repeats it all in this passage. Now, these passages come from the lectionary or the assigned readings for each Sunday. It's ironic because those are designed to broaden our reach in Scripture to make sure that you don't only hear the preacher's favorite passages, but you, you hear from all different parts of the Scripture. And yet, in this one, it seems like we're repeating ourselves. So I began to look for what's new here. What might be different in this passage than what he has said before? I found one important thing that I think is new in this passage, and it is the belief that this author holds that Christ will come again in his lifetime because he is living at the end of the age, as he says in verse 26. Or that Christ will appear a second time, is what he says in verse 28. Now, this idea that Christ is coming again in our lifetimes was a fairly popular idea in the first century that somehow the end of the world or the end of life as we know it was coming when Christ would come again. Not that all who talk or write about that understand it the same way, but there is a common theme in a few places in Scripture where this is discussed. Certainly the book of Revelation is a a series of visions and images that have a lot to do and are focused much about how Christ is coming again and what will happen at the end time. There's a little bit of it in the 13th chapter of Mark. You can find it in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and books like Daniel and other places where the authors are using vivid imagery, sometimes very dramatic descriptions of what's going to happen, often cosmic events colliding, coming together, something cataclysmic is going to happen, and we will know then that it's the end time. But usually, 
these end of the age, this kind of end of the age theology becomes most prominent when people are under persecution. And you hear that through this letter to the Hebrews in several places where the people to whom this author is writing have undergone some suffering. I'll just give you one example. If you have your Bibles open, you can look with me over to chapter 10. We read from 9, but over in 10, verse 32, he writes, But recall those earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion for those who were in prison and you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions knowing that you yourselves possess something much better and more lasting you can hear it can't you that he knows the people to whom he is writing have suffered abuse and persecution some of them have lost every worldly possession it sounds like some have been put in prison and he's writing to people in those kinds of circumstances in these circumstances it is easy to understand why a theology promising an end to all of this was surely attractive to those who are living under the weight of the abuse or the persecution or the threat of such coming upon them. I think it's important to remember this letter to the Hebrews as is written as a letter of encouragement. He's trying to give his people a word of hope about the future in difficult times. The problem comes for those of us who read it later is that it does not happen. The prediction is it's going to happen in our lifetime and then people begin to die. It's going to happen at this date and the date comes and goes and the dramatic cataclysmic change doesn't come. The timelines are the problem. When Jesus speaks of this, he points out that nobody knows the time. I think that's important. I think that's key to remember that Jesus says nobody knows the time, and yet there are people in every age, followers of Christ, who believe they know the time, and they'll write a book about it or maybe a whole series of books about it telling you what it's going to look like, how it's going to happen, and when it's coming, and then it doesn't happen. We're still here. The world appears to be going along sort of how it has throughout history. The timelines create a problem. The timelines have been wrong over and over again in every age. I do not expect a cataclysmic coming of Christ in my lifetime. So how can we embrace this image of Christ coming again? I think if it's going to be fruitful, we have to drop the timelines. And then I believe we can begin to see in the text that it encourages us or strengthens us in our faith. If we can remember the backdrop or the context is people who are being abused and persecuted, who are living through a time of suffering or persecution, I think that helps us understand 
why this letter is written as it is. But I also think we can look more closely at sort of the core part of the message or the message behind this. And we'll see that he's writing to give them the assurance that we are not alone. God has not abandoned us, even if we are living through difficult circumstances, even if we're living through times of suffering, this author would have us know God is with us, God is at work, and finally God will put all things right. When the biblical authors mention Christ coming again, I do not take it literally as something that's going to happen in my lifetime but rather I take it as a word of hope as I believe the author intended I take it as a word of encouragement and faith that Christ is with us that Christ is indeed risen that Christ is alive and at work on our behalf and that through Christ finally God will put all things right one of the Bible commentators I read told the story of a friend of his. He was a leader in the church. He worked with the youth group. And one night, in the middle of the night, his phone rang. He looked at it. It said it was coming from the police station. He answered the phone. On the other end was a young man in the youth group who said, I was out with some of my friends. We got into a bit of a ruckus, and we've all ended up in jail. I need someone to come and get me out. Might you be the one? The man said, okay, I'll come down and see what I can do. He gets out of bed and he gets dressed, goes down to the police station. They lead him into the back of the jail cells. Are. He sees the young man he knows, and he sees of several others in the cell with him that he does not know. And he's trying to decide what to do. He thinks about it for a long minute. Then he looks through the bars at these young men and says, How many of you are baptized? All the hands go up. He looks at the police officer and says, I'll take them all. Hebrews is trying to say to us, Christ will come for us because Christ wants to take us all. That when this author of Hebrews writes about Christ will come again for those eagerly waiting. He's looking for those of us with our hands up. Saying we're the baptized ones. We are your followers. We are the ones who are trying to live the way that you have taught us to live. I will take them all. I think is what Hebrews is trying to tell us. This theology has been woven throughout Christian history. It's not just in Hebrews or in the book of Revelation. There's always this sense within Christian theology of wanting to give a word of hope and encouragement, giving a word that God has the future, and even if you're going through difficult circumstances or living through difficult times, God is with you and you can turn to God and find a help in time of need. I was thinking about our affirmations of faith that come from different times, different eras in Christian history. We have nine of them in the back of our hymnal, but in almost every one of them you'll find in one way or another that it gives us this word of hope. 
I'm going to read a few of them to you. A few weeks ago, we read the Nicene Creed together. It's very long. I just want to read you a sentence. In there it says, Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. If we flip over to the statement of faith in the United Church of Canada, we find this. We are called to be the church, to celebrate God's presence, to love and serve others, to seek justice and resist evil, to proclaim Jesus, crucified and risen, our judge and our hope in life and death and life beyond death. God is with us. We are not alone. Thanks be to God. Or in the one we call the modern affirmation, it's number 885. We affirm God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit. Then the last verse of that affirmation says, We believe that this faith should manifest itself in the service of love as set forth in the example of our blessed Lord to the end that the kingdom of God may come upon the earth. Just one more, the World Methodist Social Affirmation finishes that one like this. It says, we commit ourselves individually and as a community to the way of Christ, to take up the cross, to seek abundant life for humanity, to struggle for peace with justice and freedom, to risk ourselves in faith, hope, and love, praying that God's kingdom may come. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Or today, as we move into the communion litany, we'll invite you to stand and recite the affirmation that's printed in your bulletin. It's the one from the Korean Methodist Church. I love what it says. The last line we'll recite together will be, We believe in the final triumph of righteousness in the final triumph of righteousness and in the life everlasting. All of these are getting to the same idea that God is at work in the world and finally God will put all things right. Did you happen to um, go to the PAC last month and see the performance? It was Disney's Frozen. Do you know the story? I had young girls, so I did know the story. It's about a couple of young girls. It's a great girl empowerment story. There were more princesses at the PAC than I had ever seen. All ages, dressed up, tiaras on, ready to go. It's a great story about these two sisters, Anna and Elsa. Elsa's the oldest one. She loves her sister, but she has these mysterious powers with the whisk of an arm she can create ice or snow or winter and once when they're young and playing together she's twirling around and she whisks her arm and boom the power that she doesn't know how to control yet strikes her sister injures her puts her in a coma scares her and her parents to death so the girls are separated for the safety of anna but she does not understand. She has no memory of the incident. She doesn't understand why she and her sister have to be separated. Well, through several plot twists, there comes a time 
where Elsa accidentally, again, as she's still trying to learn how to use these powers, sets off an ongoing eternal winter over the whole land or the kingdom in which they live. She is so scared she's trying to escape from this, but it's getting bad for everyone else. Again, I don't want to give it away if you haven't seen it, but through several plot twists, she comes to understand that the only way to stop this eternal winter is through a true act of love. And there are several, as the plot unfolds, of people exhibiting true acts of love for others. It's a wonderful message the sisters sing at the end about the dark and gloom going away and their desire, their hope that they can bring light and love to the world. They have come to understand it's true love that makes the difference. I tell you all of this because the author of Hebrews, I think, wants us to understand the same thing is that true love makes the difference. And this author wants us to know that God has true love for each of us. That God's love is being revealed to us through Jesus Christ and life and death and life beyond death. That we are not alone, that God is with us. And God's love is what makes the difference in our lives and the lives of others. As you read through Hebrews or read one of these affirmations of faith or spend some of your own time, I hope every day, in prayer or scripture reading, it's important to remember that despite circumstances, the author of Hebrews would tell us, God is with you, God loves you, God is still at work in your life, and you can count on God in Christ to make all things right. To finally put all things right. May it be so. Amen. And thanks be to God.